Well, if you get a copy of the Scriptures with you this morning, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We're continuing this series. We started several weeks ago called Armed for Battle as we look at spiritual warfare and the armor of God. What God has equipped us with in order to be able to, as Paul says, stand in the evil day and stand against the schemes of the devil and stand, hold our ground as the enemy advances and attacks. So this morning we come to the second piece of armor as we read together in Ephesians chapter 6. We'll read verses 10 to 14 together today. And Paul begins in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 by saying, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is God's Word. You know, I, it's, I love to watch war movies. I may come as a shocker to some of you in the room, but I love to watch war movies or a TV series that document like military operations and things of that nature. And I love to see the brotherhood and the camaraderie that exists, the shared and unified mission that people are on together, the soldiers are executing, the sense that there's something greater at stake or at, at risk other than just their own individual lives. But listen, in every, nearly every military TV series that you could possibly watch, there's always an episode where one of the main characters in the heat of battle, as firefighting is going on all around them, it rages around them, they get struck in the chest by a bullet. Right? And as they get struck in the chest by a bullet, you know, they go flailing down to the ground, and they fall, and as they fall to the ground, everything kind of goes in slow motion and gets real silent and still. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like a very dramatic fall to the ground. And as that character lays there on the ground, eyes closed, silent and still, it cuts to a commercial break. And you watch like, you know, Clorox bleach. And you watch about, you know, Audi and their new vehicle line that's coming out. And you get to see commercials about all kinds of things, prescription medicines and soft drinks. And then all of a sudden the commercial breaks over and it returns and it cuts back to that same scene where that same soldier is lying there silent and still. And it appears as if he's dead. But he's not, right? Because slowly, he's the main character. They can't kill this guy off, right? The main character. And so slowly his eyes crack and he begins to cough, right? And as, as he begins to cough, he kind of grabs for the place in his chest where he was shot and he winces in pain. Then he unbuttons his shirt and you see the bullet lodged there in his body armor, right? Stuck there in the midst of the Kevlar. And he's okay, and he gets up and he leads a charge and defeats the enemy all within the five-minute window before the late local news. Right, there's always that episode, perhaps multiple episodes in those kinds of television series. Because you, but you see, as you think about that whole scene as it plays out before you, what should have ripped through, right through his chest and right through his vital organs, including his heart, only leaves him little bruised with maybe some broken ribs because he had body armor. He had something protecting those vital organs. Because if you don't protect your heart in the midst of battle, if you leave it exposed for the enemy, you are a sitting duck. 
Because if somebody drives a spear or shoots a bullet through your heart, you're done. You're done. No matter how skilled the field surgeons are, if shrapnel goes ripping through your heart, you're done. But wearing body armor over that area of the heart guards your heart from the attack of the enemy. Because the heart is vital, not only to your physical life, church, but also to your spiritual life. Your physical well-being and your spiritual well-being. That's why in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, the ancient sage writes these words. He says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Guard your heart. Keep your heart. Protect your heart. Because out of it, out of it comes all of life. Because in the Bible, the heart is not merely that little organ that's about the size of your fist that beats in your chest, but it's the center of all of your affections. It's the center. You, th- you think with your heart. You feel with your heart. You decide in your heart. Okay? You live from your heart in the Bible. That's why the sage says, keep it, protect it, guard it with all vigilance. And so what do we do to protect our heart? What do we do to guard our heart? What's the Kevlar that God has given us to shroud our chest, the breastplate that would cover our heart and protect it from the enemy? And Paul says it's righteousness. It's righteousness. See, what your heart needs more than anything else in its defense of the enemy's advances against the schemes of the devil, against Satan's devices, what it needs is righteousness. Righteousness. Now, the Bible, in particular the New Testament, it speaks of righteousness in two ways. First of all, it's in both, listen, are vital for keeping our hearts. Both of them. And we're going to break that down here in a minute. But righteousness in general is this in the Bible. It's what God requires. It is what is right and just. It's uprightness. It's right doing. Right actions. But it also speaks of righteousness in another way. It talks about God putting man into a right relationship with Himself. Because see, in the New Testament, it speaks of both a positional righteousness that we have, but also a practical righteousness that we are to have. Right? So both and. It's not either or. A positional righteousness and a practical righteousness. And we're going to take a look at both of those this morning because the Bible calls us, Paul says, remember, four times in five verses, stand, stand, stand. And so if you're going to stand your ground on the basis of, first of all, your positional righteousness, then here's what you've got to know. You've got to know who you are. You've got to know who you are. If you're going to guard your heart with righteousness, you've got to know who you are. See, positional righteousness in the Bible, listen, is being in a position before God. A position, that's why I call it positional righteousness. Being a position before God where you are pure, right, just, holy, and clean in the eyes of God. And He puts you into that position. In other words, in your relationship with God, you are squeaky clean. Okay? There's not any dirt behind your ears. There's not any wax buildup inside of them. Right? You don't have any snotty discharge. Okay? You are cleaner than Mr. Clean, Pine Saw, and Clorox can make you. Okay? You're righteous positionally before God like a stainless steel appliance. 
Ah, maybe this will break it down for you a little bit. That just rolls off the showroom floor, right? Before it ever gets installed in a house, it's sitting there on the showroom floor, and there is not a fingerprint on the thing. You know what I'm saying? Right? There's not smudges. There's not pieces and chunks of food that fall down in between those little spots where the handle comes into the body and you just have to like take toothpicks and knives to try to pry those things out. There's none of that. It's like a stainless steel appliance that rolls off the showroom floor before it gets grease from cooking and fingerprints from kids and food bits. See, positional righteousness means that God sees you this way as squeaky clean, even though you know personally in your own heart, in your own life, that you're not. That's positional righteousness. And all through the New Testament, church, listen, we are told that positional righteousness is not something that we achieve, but something that we receive. Let me give you a few, let me give you some, some verses, okay? It's in the book. I'm not making this up. All right, Ephesians chapter 2. You go back in Paul's epistle to the church at Ephesus and listen to what he says about salvation. He says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the what? Somebody? Gift of God. Not a result of works so that no man may boast. Paul says, your salvation has come to you. Your standing in Christ has come to you as a gift that you receive, not a wage that you achieve. Not something that you've earned, but something that's been given to you. God has made you as such in His sight through faith in Christ. There's more in the book about this. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, there's a righteousness that comes from God, a positional righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus that you did not achieve by the keeping of the law or by your sensitivity to the commands of the prophets. Even though they pointed to it. In addition, Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Paul, one of the most religious dudes on the planet prior to his conversion, when Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, listen to what he has to say about everything that he did prior to coming to know Jesus. Indeed, Philippians 3, 8. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, that's the sensitive translation. Okay? That word actually means feces. In other words, just before this, Paul said, listen, you think you've got credentials. If you think you've got street cred before God, I have more. Right? So he lists his resume, his pedigree, and he says, all these things to me are like feces compared to knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus. Listen to what he goes on to say. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, me being squeaky clean in God's sight because I've kept the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on on faith, trusting 
what God has done, not what I've done, trusting who God has sent in my place to live for me and to die for me. One more verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Brian read it earlier for us. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And it's from this verse that the great reformer Martin Luther coined the term the great exchange. The great exchange. And when theologians talk about the great exchange, they talk about this big 25 cent theological word called imputation. All right? Imputation. Three syllables. Okay? It's a mouthful. Imputation. Now, what imputation means is this that what really belongs to one person is credited to or laid upon another person. That's what imputation means, right? So let me, let me break it down for you. In other words, what really belonged to us was our sin. What really belonged to us was our punishment. What really belonged to us was God's anger and wrath against our sin. What really belonged to us was all of our foolishness. What really belonged to us was all of our greed and lust and, and manipulative speech. What really belonged to us was our sin. And it's just punishment death. And our sin and death was imputed. It was laid on Jesus at the cross. But it doesn't stop there. Okay? Because Paul doesn't just say, he who knew no sin became sin for us. But he goes on to say, so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, here's what happened. What really belonged to Jesus was purity and righteousness and justice. What really belonged to Jesus was an impeccable record. He lived up to all of God's standards in all things. And that perfect righteousness, while our sin and death was laid on Jesus, His perfect record was laid on us. So that we, by position in Christ through faith, would have a righteousness that doesn't come from our record, but it comes from Jesus' record. See, because you and I, look, I'm going to point the finger at myself. You may be better than me, but I could not keep God's standard. And so what God did for me, I don't know about you, but he sent a stand in for me. Someone who could live the perfect life that I ought to have lived. And someone who would die the death that I deserve to die on account of my sin. My sin and death was laid on Jesus. His righteousness and perfect record was laid on me. That's imputation. That's imputation, church. God sent a stand in force not only to absorb our punishment and sin, but also to lay on us the record of a perfect sinless life. So that when God looks at us, He loves us and sees us in the same way that He sees His eternal, only, begotten Son for those of us who are sons and daughters of God. In fact, that's one of the best ways I can illustrate this to you. Positional righteousness is through the metaphor, the image of adoption. And Paul uses that earlier in Ephesians as well. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 1, 3-6. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, 
even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, there's a lot of theology to unpack in those verses, and we will at some point in the future when we work through Ephesians. But listen, what I want to point out to you today is the theological reality of your adoption if you're in Christ. Of your adoption. See, when a child is legally adopted, their position changes immediately. In a moment. As soon as the judge signs the papers, issues the orders, the child's status changes overnight. Their name changes. They, ha- they, they go from being an orphan to gaining a mother and father. They may gain brothers and sisters. They go from being abandoned to accepted. They go from being unloved to cherished. They go from being cast out to brought in. They go from being nothing, having nothing to their name to being the legal heirs of all of their share of their parents' inheritance. Everything changes about their position in a moment as soon as they're brought into that family. And church, the same is true of you and I. This is what happens for everyone whom God adopts as His child. Their position changes immediately. And He doesn't. He sees them just like He sees Jesus. He loves them just like He loves Jesus. He dotes on them just like He dotes on Jesus. The same love the Father has eternally had for the Son through the person of the Holy Spirit, He now shares with all of His adopted sons and daughters as they receive the same Spirit that has eternally been the expression of God's love for Himself between the Father and the Son. That's what you get when you're adopted. Your position changes in a moment. Do you know who you are, church? If you don't know who you are, your heart is exposed. Because listen, positional righteousness, here's, here, both these types of righteousness protect us, protect our hearts. Positional righteousness protects us against shameful accusations. Shameful accusations. I don't know about you, but listen, the devil is at work in my life daily. And I told you at the beginning of this series, listen, when we start talking about spiritual warfare, some stuff's going to pop off in your life that you didn't expect before. And listen, I can tell you, it's been heavy in mine these last several weeks. But I don't know about you, but there, there are times in which the devil is at work in my life constantly reminding me of my past sins. Of the ways in which I have failed to honor God in my life. Of the ways in which I have refused to give the glory that is due to God on account of all of His work for me. The devil will whisper in my ear, remember what you thought? Remember what you said in that moment? Remember what you did to that person? Remember how you felt about that situation? Remember your selfishness. Remember your lies. Remember your greed. Remember your lust. And he will whisper shameful accusations and pummel my mind and my heart with them daily. He'll say, remember, 
Remember, remember. Listen, I don't know if I'm by myself this morning or if any of you know that experience as well. But listen, there's only two ways that the shameful accusations that Satan would want to levy against you don't affect you. The first one is this, is that you have a conscience that has been seared. A conscience that has been seared. So when the devil whispers in your ear, remember, you're like, so what? Because someone's taken a branding iron to your conscience because you've neglected and ignored it for so long, it's like someone has seared it over and it no longer feels remorse. It no longer feels guilt. It no longer experiences shame. And listen, church, that is not a healthy place to be when your conscience is seared. Because God's given you a conscience to govern your life to keep you from running off the rails. And when it gets seared, you're headed for destruction. That's one way the shameful accusations of the devil cannot affect you. But listen, the only other way is if you have someone who's taken away your shame. Someone who's taken it away. See, on the, let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. On the Day of Atonement, back in Leviticus chapter 16, the high priest was instructed to take two goats, two lambs, right? Both spotless, without blemish, and to bring them there into the temple before the Lord. And one of, those, one of those lambs, he would lay his hands upon the head of the lamb, and he confessed the iniquities and the sins of the people, their transgressions upon that animal. And following that confession, he would take a knife, slit the throat of the, the, the animal, pour its blood out, sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. The rest of the sacrifice was consumed as it was a sacrifice for sin. It was a sacrifice for the guilt that the people had incurred before God on account of their sin to atone for it, to turn God's wrath aside from them. But the second lamb, the priest would do the same thing, lay his hands on the animal's head and he would confess the sins of the people on to the animal. But that animal got to live, at least for a little while, Because they took that animal and they led it outside the city into the wilderness. See, one animal was the picture of God dealing with our guilt on account of our sin before Him. The other animal was led outside of the city into the wilderness as a picture of God removing our shame on account of our sin. And listen, church, at the cross, Jesus does both. Both. See, when God's wrath falls upon him and his side is pierced, his hands are pierced, his feet are pierced, he bleeds out for us. The veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place in the temple is torn from top to bottom. As God says, now you have access into my presence. No longer do you need to sacrifice animals. There has been one sacrifice once for all to deal with your guilt to deal with your sin, to atone for my iniquities and transgressions. God has dealt with that fully and finally in Christ. But where was Jesus crucified, church? Outside of the city. The lamb was led away to slaughter outside the gates. And every step that he took as he made his way toward Golgotha, he was carrying your shame away. He was carrying my shame away. Away, taking it away, 
See, the only way that the shameful accusations of the devil cannot affect you is if your conscience is seared or you have someone who's taken away your shame. So that every time the devil whispers in your ear, remember, remember, you can say to the devil, no, you remember. You remember. You remember that he carried my shame to that hill. You remember that he carried my shame to that cross. You remember that he carried my shame outside the city. He took it away. You remember, devil. So, positional righteousness, listen church, protects your heart from being overwhelmed when the devil begins to whisper, remember, remember, remember. But listen, there's another type of righteousness that protects our heart as well. If you're going to stand your ground with practical righteousness in your life, listen, not only must you know who you are, but you must be who you are. Be who you are. Let's go back to this image of adoption again here for a moment. Remember when a child's legally adopted, their position changes in an instant, immediately. But listen, their practice changes progressively over the course of time. Consider an adopted child, particularly one who may have come out of an abusive situation or came out of an orphanage in which they were in another country and they were neglected and not cared for. I've spoken to several families who have adopted from orphanages overseas or from difficult and dangerous domestic situations. And to a person, listen, they speak of how when that child was taken out of that setting and brought into their home, no matter the amount of love that was showered upon them, no matter the amount of affection that was given to them, no matter the amount of provision that they now had of of three meals a day and snacks now to eat out of the pantry and clothes to wear, clean clothes every day, no matter how much those children were doted upon. It was hard for them to unlearn all the triggers and all the habits and all the coping mechanisms and the self-protective behaviors that they developed over the course of time in those dangerous or abusive environments. They have to unlearn ways of life from the orphanage and learn ways of life as a part of the family. Unlearn the ways of coping with the cold, dark, damp, harsh and lonely evenings and learn the ways of living in a warm, bright, dry, gentle and loving home. See, church, whenever God adopts us as his children in a moment, we are put right with him in a moment We are positionally made righteous as an exchange takes place. And our sin fell on Jesus. His righteousness clothes us. But over the course of time, right? In a moment, we're made right. But over a lifetime, we're put back together in His image. Over a lifetime, progressively, we learn to live in light of the love that we found in Christ. Doesn't happen overnight. And so you might say this, that the Christian life essentially is us learning now on this journey of being an adopted child, of learning to progressively become in practice what we know we are in position. Okay? So we know positionally we are clean, we are right, we are just, we are holy in God's eyes. But the Christian life is that journey of progressively becoming in practice what we know ourselves to be in position. 
Listen, I got Bible for this too. Ephesians chapter 2, right after Paul says, for it's by grace you have been saved, through faith. It's not of yourselves. You didn't do anything to earn this. It's a gift from God. You have no grounds for boasting other than in the Lord. Then he goes on to say in Ephesians 2.10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, what? Walk in them. So when we come to faith in Christ, we're made positionally righteous, then we learn what it means then afterwards to walk in the good works that God has ordained for us to walk in, to live that way. So what are some of those good works practically in our lives? Let me give you a few this morning. First of all, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1-3, to Paul says, as a part of the church, you ought to work to maintain unity. Not to create unity, but to maintain unity that Christ has created through His cross and His adoption of all kinds of people from all kinds of places. You ought to maintain the unity through the Spirit by the bond, and the bond of peace. In addition, listen, if you back further up in Ephesians, Paul says, listen, I'm an advocate for everyone. Because immediately following Chapter 2, verse 10, where he says, there's good works for you to walk in. Listen to what he says as he goes on in verse 11. I, hadn't, I never noticed this connection until this week. Never until this week. But in verse, chapter 2, verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Verse 11, therefore. Ah, you know what therefore is therefore? Right? There's a connection here, church. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And he goes on for the next couple of chapters to talk about the reality of the gospel and how it takes these people who were once at odds with each other, Jew and Gentile, who hated each other along religious and ethnic lines, and he has now brought them together into one body because of his son. And he says, there's good works for you to walk in, therefore. And then Paul says in chapter 3, listen, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I brought this gospel to the Gentiles to bring them into reconciliation with their Creator and bring them together into one body. And listen, church. Right, write me this week, say, you, I, I, listen, Things have happened in my life these last couple of weeks that I just don't care anymore, okay? Right? You can, you can accuse me of politics from the pulpit, whatever you want to say. But listen, listen. If God is able, if God is able to take Jew and Gentile reconciled into one body together, 
because of the breaking down the dividing wall of hostility that stood between them. And he's able to reconcile those two categories of humanity. How much more so might he be able in the church to bring to reconciliation everyone in the world who wants to divide over the issues of race? How much more so is he able to do that? And listen, I want to tell you, I believe that's one of the good works that he's prepared for us to walk in. Maintain unity in the bond of peace. Be an advocate for all. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. Be imitators of God. Walk in love. Walk as children of the light. Walk in with all of this is Ephesians, right? Literally straight from the book. Serve and submit in marriage. Obey your parents. Instruct your children. All of these are the good works God's prepared for us in advance as we, who are positionally righteous, begin now to practically work out that righteousness in all of these facets of our lives as we walk with God. So you've got to know who you are. You've got to be who you are. And then finally, listen, if, if positional righteousness protects us from shameful accusations and practical righteousness, it protects us against sinful addictions. Sinful addictions. Now, I, don't know, I, I don't know about you, but I love to eat bad. I do. Listen, this last week I was down in South Louisiana and I was helping my family recover, salvage some stuff, and one night we stayed at my uncle's house and his wife cooked, man... It was, it was some good stuff, right? Meatball stew. Now listen, in South Louisiana, everything comes served with brown gravy and rice. Okay? I, 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 you think I'm joking. Okay? One of the jokes in, in, in Cajun country, right, is about this guy named Boudreaux and this guy named Thibodeau. Okay? And Boudreaux and Thibodeau were out walking a levee together one day. And they, off in the distance, they see some kind of animal scurrying along. And Boudreaux turns to Thibodeau and says, hey, what was that? And he says, I don't know, but cook some rice. Some of you will get that on the way home. But listen, so there's brown gravy, there's rice, there's meatballs. It's all packed up in there. There's green bean casserole, like it's Thanksgiving. There's corn, there's bread, there's cake. There's all, and I sat, and listen, after working in the heat for three days, being famished, I had two loads of that stuff on my plate, Okay? The next morning, we went to Rice Palace for breakfast. Okay? Just, I'm telling you, right? Rice Palace was the stuff. Okay? So I sit down at Rice Palace, I get the order off the breakfast menu. I get three egg omelet stuffed with jalapenos and peppers and mushrooms and cheese and bacon with some home fries on the side, right? Not the outside were nice and crispy inside, just tender and melt in your mouth, right? Perf- cooked to perfection. Big biscuit there that was nice, not like the dry biscuits you get at some places, but just nice and moist. Cut that puppy open, slap some butter on that. I love to eat bad, but listen, whew, on the way home, after that dinner Thursday night and breakfast Friday morning, I was feeling it. I was feeling it. I was lethargic. I was tired. I felt terrible. I got home. I just wanted to sleep and go to the bathroom. You know what I'm saying? I and mean, it was bad. 
It was bad. But whenever I eat well, right, a little leafy, leafy salad there with some carrots and some, you know, uh, bell peppers, fresh cut up, all, right? I, I, all of a sudden, I have the energy, right? My body's like, whoo, yeah, this is what you're supposed to be eating, man, right? You just feel the difference. And listen, church, I'm telling you, in the same way that your taste buds, right, or in the same way that whenever you eat bad physically, right, it may taste good for a moment, but you feel the effects of it afterwards. Also, spiritually in your life, when you give yourself over to be someone that you are not any longer because you are positionally righteous in Christ, when you live as if you're not, all of a sudden you begin to wonder why you feel powerless, you feel weak, you feel tired, you feel lethargic, you don't want God's Word, you don't want to be with God's people, you don't want to worship God, you don't want to pray because you've been giving yourself to these substandard Things that you think are going to fill you and feed you. And they eventually become sinful addictions. And so what was a lie turns into a deceptive way of living. What was lust turns into adultery and addictions to pornography. What was, right, some extra expenses on the monthly budget becomes an addiction to buying things that you don't need and stockpiling them out of greed. And what happens is it begins slowly to envelop your life. And darkness begins to choke out light. Same thing happens, but whenever you practically walk in righteousness, it doesn't give an opportunity for the devil to come in. Because what he wants to do is to envelop your life. He wants to get his dirty, grubby, grimy little claws on you. And to choke out fruit from your life that God wants to bear. And as you walk in practical righteousness, as you be who you are, you know who you are, righteous in Christ. As you be who you are, it's not good grammar, but good theology, okay? As you be who you are, then, all, then, then you begin to go, man, I... I feel like I have power. I feel like I have energy. I, I want to be with God's people. I want to be in God's Word. I want to be in prayer. I want to worship. That's what, that's what practical righteousness will do for you. It'll break the addictions in your life. And it'll protect you from new ones developing. Paul says you've got to know who you are, church. You gotta be who you are. I'll close with this illustration. I, I, I remember in the C.S. Lewis's um, Chronicle of Narnia series, when the Pevensey children they are there in war-torn England, particularly in that book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and they're there and they're in, they're in England. They're just these kids who have no power. There are these kids who have no authority. There are these kids who have no say in the direction of their life and what's going to happen around them, what's going to happen to them. There are bombs being dropped all across Europe at the time as World War II has erupted. And their parents send them off to stay with a distant relative outside of the city so that they would not be subject to the bombing raids that were coming over the city of London. And as they get to that home, they're still just children. No power, no authority, no say. Until they stumble through that wardrobe. And on the other side of that wardrobe, 
as they begin to meet people in the land of Narnia, they come to discover they are sons of Eve. Or daughters of Eve and sons of Adam who have been given what? Authority to rule and subdue the earth. And even though it's been twisted, they are kings and queens in Narnia. You know what? Once they discover that there, I, I somewhat think that wardrobe is Lewis's way of trying to capture their conversion as they stumble through there and they meet Aslan, the great lion. And they come to understand they are kings and queens even when they go back into their normal life there in England. They are unsatisfied with all of the trappings of being a child because they know now who they are so they won't give themselves over to those things. They live now with a new dignity and a new royalty and a new sense of their identity. Listen, church, Paul says that's what will guard your heart. Know who you are and be who you are, church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the fact that you have not left us unequipped or ill-informed. But God, you have given us the very armor that your son wore in his earthly ministry to stand against the schemes of the devil. So Father, may we, may we radiate our lives with the knowledge of who we are. Our positional righteousness. And every time Satan whispers in our ear, remember that we would say with a loud, firm confidence back to him, no, you remember. My shame is gone. And Father, every time we are tempted by our enemy to slide back into old patterns of thinking and old ways of living, may we remember the fruit those deeds of darkness bore in our lives and not yield to them. That we would continue to experience the progressive work of Your Spirit in our lives. To form our practice around our position. So that we would not be those who are bound to addictions and sinful attachments that would choke out fruit in our lives, but there would be great fruit being born as we walk in the light, as we walk in wisdom, as we put off the old self, as we put on the new self. Give us grace today, God. For some of us to be reminded of just how sufficient Your Son is. And for others of us to go to war against those desires and those deeds that would want to hold us in bondage. Help us to guard our hearts with righteousness that we might live in freedom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.